Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Hi. Okay, good. There we go. Okay, wonderful. Uh, it is wonderful to see you all here. I'm thrilled that we have such a big turnout for this really wonderful and important panel. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I am Risa Golubuff. I am the Dean of the Law School, so welcome to the Law School. Um, it is my pleasure to welcome you here for this really important discussion uh, about the implications of the recent Supreme Court cases on higher education admissions. Um, before we begin, I'd like to offer a few thank yous. Um, to everyone who have made today possible. So first, thank you to the study, uh, the Center for the Study of Race and Law, led by Professor Kimberly Jenkins Robinson uh, for organizing this. And thank you to our knowledgeable, varied, and expert panelists who are here. We are so happy to have you here. Uh, I also want to thank ACS and BALSA for co-sponsoring this event, and then all of the people in the law school who make events like this possible, our events team, communications, building services, law IT, these don't happen without them, so thank you to all of them. And finally, thank you to all of you for joining us uh, today. So since the Supreme Court issued its decisions at the end of June, uh, the effect of those decisions has been the stuff of many headlines and many articles, scholarly and popular. Um, and it has been a major topic of discussion in admissions offices, counsel's offices, president's offices at universities and colleges across the country, as faculty, administrators, and institutional leaders have worked to remain within the bounds of the law while also continuing to build campus communities that are broadly diverse across many dimensions and in which each member feels a sense of belonging. Many have predicted that we are at the start of a season of litigation on affirmative action and related questions, not the end of that season, not only in higher education but in other settings. We've already begun seeing such cases, lawsuits initiated uh, uh, against uh, programs like an Atlanta-based program, the Fearless Fund that makes small grants along with mentoring available to businesses owned by black women. It is not a state actor, that fund, but the claim is under the portion of the Civil Rights Act of 1866 that prevents racial discrimination in private contracts. We've also seen suits against large law firms under a similar theory, claiming that their diversity fellowships for first and second year law students unlawfully exclude certain applicants on the basis of their race or ethnicity. And of course, there's the case just up the road involving Thomas Jefferson High School, uh, where the plaintiffs have asked the Supreme Court to determine whether the Fairfax County School Board engaged in impermissible racial balancing when it changed its admissions policies for the school which is an elite public high school in Northern Virginia. With this brief context in mind, and I'm sure there'll be discussion of more of that and other developments, it seems clear that students for fair admissions cases have significant implications across higher education and well beyond it. As both one of the aforementioned university leaders and a longtime civil rights historian and constitutional law scholar, I am so excited to hear our panelists' thoughts on these cases, and it is my delight, it is my delight to introduce our moderator for today's panel so that she can get us started on this terrific discussion. Kimberly Jenkins Robinson is the Martha Lubin Karsh and Bruce A. Karsh Bicentennial Professor of Law here at the Law School, as well as a Professor of Education at UVA's School of Education and Human Development, and a Professor, a professor of Law, Education, and Public Policy at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy. 
Here at the law school, Kimberly directs the Center for the Study of Race and Law, as well as the brand new Education Rights Institute, which will have its formal launch next month, and I hope to see you all there again. She is one of the nation's leading education law experts, and she speaks, writes, and teaches regularly in areas of educational equity, school funding, education and democracy, equal opportunity, civil rights, Title IX, and federalism. She has published two edited volumes and a wide array of scholarly articles, book chapters, and editorials. Before joining us here at UVA, Kimberly was previously on the law faculties of the University of Richmond and Emory University and has also held research roles at George Washington and Harvard Law Schools. She is a member of the American Law Institute and a senior research fellow at the Learning Policy Institute in Palo Alto. Before entering the academy, she practiced for several years at Hogan and Hartson, now Hogan Lovells, in Washington, D.C., and in the office of the general counsel at the United States Department of Education. Kimberly is a who, a graduate of the University of Virginia, undergraduate where she was an Eccles Scholar and recipient of the University Achievement Award, and Harvard Law School where she was the articles editor of the Harvard Law Review and graduated cum laude, and after which she clerked for the Honorable James Browning on the Ninth Circuit. I am so thankful to Kimberly for putting together this panel and thrilled to listen to the experts she has put together for it. So without further ado, I turn things over to Kimberly. All right, so thank you so much for that warm welcome, Dean Galyubov. I'm so excited to see such a full room, and I have to give a particular shout out to my former, current, and future students. So I'm excited to see so many students here today. So we have a distinguished panel, and I cannot wait to hear their presentations. So I'm going to jump right in with introductions, and then we're going to have a session of uh, questions that I will pose, and then we will be opening up for questions from the audience. So um, feel free to start take, you know, writing down some thoughts of questions now. So first, we are going to hear from David Hinojosa. So He's the Director of Education Opportunities Project at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. For those of you who are not familiar with it, it is one of the most prestigious civil rights organizations in the country. He's counsel for student intervenors at, at UNC and student amici at Harvard. And I had a chance to watch his um, argument at the Supreme Court, so that was wonderful. Um, second, we have Nia T. Shaw. She's Director of Litigation, Asian Americans Advancing Justice, and she was co-counsel with David for student amici in the Harvard University case. Next, we have our very own Deborah Hellman. She's the Robert E. Scott Distinguished Professor of Law. She's the Palmer Weber Research Professor of Civil Liberties and Human Rights, and she's the Director, Center for Law and Philosophy, University of Virginia School of Law. And last but not least, we have Richard Kallenberg. He's a non-resident scholar, the Center on Education and Workforce uh, at Georgetown University. He also was involved in the case. He was an expert witness for the Students for Fair Admissions. So we are first going to hear from David and then Richard. Then we will hear from uh, uh, Debbie and then last of all, Niyati. All right, thanks so much. Kimberly, again, you know, for inviting uh, the Lawyers Committee and myself out here to UVA. Y'all have an incredibly beautiful uh, campus out here. Um, maybe not the best basketball team on the east side, but uh, um, I won't say if I'm a fan of another school south of here. Um, <laughs> just their basketball team. Uh, but uh, it's. Uh, an incredible honor, you know, to be here with you, and thank you all again 
uh, especially those of you who weren't able to get a free lunch, you know, and still stuck around, you know, for this. Uh, greatly appreciate that, and thank you uh, for the student associations who are also supporting and sponsoring this. And congratulations again to uh, Kimberly. I hadn't seen her in person, but I did congratulate her online through the Education Rights Institute. And it's an incredible opportunity uh, to advance uh, equity and opportunity in our country. And uh, you're the right person to lead it. So thanks so much uh, again for that. Um, so I'm going to talk to you about the the case, right? And it's not easy talking about the case because we did not prevail. Our clients did not prevail in this case. We represented a multiracial group of students together with the North Carolina Justice Center and Relman Colfax who had intervened successfully into the UNC case. Um, and then we also represented student Amiki with uh, my friend and colleague Nia T. Shaw and the Asian Americans Advancing Justice, AJC, and the affiliates. Uh, from California, and we represented a multiracial group of amici there. And in that case, even though we represented amici, normally amici are put on the sidelines, you know, submit a brief if you care to, and we'll look at it maybe, right? But they actually allowed uh, us to present witness testimony. So together with LDF, who represented another group of interveners, or amici in the case, we presented eight total witnesses uh, in that case as well. In the UNC case, we were actually able to not just present uh, current students, former students, and alumni as well, but also two experts who testified. So, you know, the re record looked a little differently between UNC and Harvard, but I'm going to try to do a, a real quick run through uh, on uh, the case. So, what you should know is that these both, both of these cases were filed on the same day one against the oldest public, one against the oldest private university uh, in the country. In fact, uh, UNC, which I said it now, uh, UNC is the oldest uh, public university and was founded in 1789. And guess who it was founded to educate? The children of enslavers. That's who it was founded for. And for nearly 200 years, all the way into the 1980s, so we're past Brown v. Board, they continued to exclude, not in Moss any, anymore, but they did in, uh, try to uh, continue to try and exclude, uh, especially black students, but other students of color. And that's you know the history that we had at UNC and how and why it felt that it was necessary to consider race among several other factors in its pursuit of a more diverse student body. Um, so a couple of things that you should know because all the headlines and even the Supreme Court got this wrong. There's two different records in these cases. There's different claims. So there was no intentional discrimination claim against UNC on behalf of Asian American students vis-a-vis -vis, uh, white students at you know, the same claim that they had at Harvard. And that's interesting because you know, I, when, when I was presenting an argument uh, in the Supreme Court, and it was my first argument too, Justice Alito ask a question and he's all like, well, wait a second, you know, like, I'll maybe add a little bit. Maybe he, maybe he said, you know, I read your great brief, right? Your brief was great. <laughs> but I don't see where you mentioned Asian Americans. I mean, I, I did a search of your brief and it doesn't say Asian Americans. I mean, how is that? And I just responded because that question never came up in any of the moods. 
right? I only did three moots, right? Got my butt kicked. Uh, but that question never came up. And so I was like, oh, well, that actually represents the record in this case. Because in the UNC case, there wasn't an intentional discrimination claim on behalf of Asian American students, and the record was different. But they don't know this because they've conflated the two. And I mean, to their credit, they knew what decision they wanted to reach, right? So they were reading what they wanted to read. They interpreted certain things that they, that they wanted to. In fact, in the UNC case, so the Harvard trial was three weeks long. The UNC trial was two weeks long, and it was during the pandemic. And during, the, uh, during their case in chief, they presented one witness who they thought from UNC was going to say that they didn't know what critical mass was and everything, but they didn't get that from the UNC witness. And only two other witnesses, R.C. Diacono, who was their economist trying to suggest about how race was used as more than a plus factor, and Rick Kallenberg, who had testified on behalf of SFFA, uh, arguing that there were race-neutral alternatives that could be considered and haven't been adequately considered by UNC uh, before it has considered race-conscious admissions. So those are the records you know, that we have in the cases. And then we have the decision. I didn't know this was going to go one by one, uh, but we'll see. Um, so the court, the, the headlines got it wrong, right? New York Times, Washington Post. I remember talking to a Washington Post reporter like an hour after, and I tell him, you know that uh, affirmative action wasn't overruled. Grutter wasn't overruled. Affirmative action wasn't banned across. I was like, I've been reading all these headlines, you know, and he's all like, oh, I'm sorry, I was one of those, and I honestly didn't know that he had authored, you know, one of those pieces, but it was wrong, you know, but the fact is, is that while they did not overrule Grutter, they underruled it. I don't know whether or not you all will learn about underruling uh, in law school. I didn't really learn about underruling, and people have different terms uh, for this, but what they did was they revised the strict scrutiny standard to make it so much more difficult for universities. It's almost like, oh, you want to consider race as one part of your admission cycle? We dare you. And here's what you're going to have to meet now. So they kind of say, well, we're not overruling it, but we're going to revise the framework. So what, how do they do that? Um, this is not cooperating. Um, <laughs> so, so first, they did what my friend Ted Shaw uh, from University of North Carolina, formerly LDF, a huge champion of civil rights over the years, uh, and has argued before the U.S. Supreme Court plenty of times. You know, but he said that you know Brown v. Board. That's BVVB. For those of you that may not be familiar with that, um, <clears throat> that it was once hallowed. Right, that's the one. You know, they, they asked Justice Coney Barrett, right? You know, like, what do you think of Brown v. Board? Oh no, I'm not touching that. You know, that's a great decision. You know, it's precedent. You know, let, let's you know move on to other uh, questions. And so, how did they how did they do that? I'm not going to go into some protracted because I only have so much time, and I forgot to start my timer um, and bring my and bring my watch here. Uh, and be careful because I've talked through many uh, red lights. All right, six minutes. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so, you know, Brown v. Board held that um, separate facilities, school facilities is no longer 
considered equal. You cannot have separate but equal, right? So they overrule that. Uh, so they made their arguments suggesting that, well, you know, that means it's colorblind. You know, Brown v. Board, you know, essentially meant that we have a colorblind constitution. And that might make sense to some of you, you know, but it really doesn't if you know the history of the, of the Equal Protection Clause. It was both an anti-subjugation piece, the history of it, so you, you, I can even take you on on the originalist argument, for those of you that you know, suggest that you are originalist, um, and you can look at the history of the education clause, you can see that when Congress was considering different versions of this, and President Andrew Johnson at the time had stepped in momentarily before being impeached later, right? But he said specifically that no, this equal protection clause, the language that you have, it's gonna cause discrimination against white people, right? Nobody was discriminating against white people in the 1860s, except other white people maybe, that were discriminating against them maybe on economics or something else. But the point is, is that, you know, that it was not just an anti-subjugation clause, but it was an equal opportunity clause. They had been denied the opportunity to compete, the opportunity to involve themselves. In, in so many parts of the activity. And there were states that were passing these black codes. So you can do a search for black code if you're not you know, too familiar with it, but essentially they were the Jim Crow laws, uh, before Jim Crow laws were Jim Crow laws, you know, um, back in the 1800s. And they were these states after they passed the 13th Amendment that started at enacting all these other uh, laws to further subjugate uh, uh, black people in America, whether they were uh, freed, uh, enslaved people or never enslaved. And so as you go through, you know, the Equal Protection Clause and, you know, march forward, you know, through the Brown v. Board decision, you know, the court said, no, we're not going to adopt this uh, colorblind approach. But yet what the Supreme Court does, in its opinion, in this case, is it reaches into a brief filed by uh, Justice Marshall when he was uh, counsel, among other counsel, you know, on the case, and pulls out things from there, you know, suggesting that that's, that's what, how it's supposed to be interpreted. Well, that's not what the precedent is, though, right? How are you applying precedent when the precedent doesn't say, and then they, and that's how they're gutting now Brown v. Board. That's how they gut the Equal Protection Clause. So, more specifically, what did they do? They said, these goals, these educational benefits of diversity, these goals about uh, building cross-racial relationships and increasing perspectives in the classroom uh, aren't really uh, measurable to us as the justices. They were being measured by social scientists because social scientists know how to measure and that's it actually in the record. But this is what they said. Uh, they also said that you, that you can't use race as a negative. But Justice Jackson and Justice Sotomayor, you know, we're trying to educate the judges about how race-conscious admissions is not like what they experience. It's not quotas. It's not bonus points. It's not set-aside admission tracks, you know, for certain uh, people. 
It's just considering race as one of many factors because you often can't divorce race you know, from the experiences and attributes you know, that many students bring. And I understand you know, for some of those white justices, it's a little hard to understand because they're part of the majority and have been you know, often involved with you know, so much uh, privilege. But they still said you know, that race is used as a negative. It must be used as a negative because if you can use it as a plus factor, then for other students, it's a negative. But that's not even how admissions occurs. That's not even how it it's, uh, was shown in the record. And I'll maybe get to that you know, a, li a little bit more. But it's not the zero-sum game. Because you know, who's to say that it, it wasn't a student who um, was from a rural community that got that spot? But because that person is a person of color, you just assume that that person must have got your spot as though you were entitled to that spot. Um, and they also said that it reinforces stereotypes, even though we had substantial student testimony in both cases, talking about how race-conscious admissions and inclusivity helps you know, expand perspectives because you have more people of certain races and backgrounds, you're gonna have a wider spectrum of, um, uh, of perspectives. And then finally, there was no logical endpoint because the universities were basically saying, look, we're gonna end this pretty soon. Uh, and take our word for it, and they were like, no, 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 we're not, we're, we're done with that. Even though back in Grutter, they had kind of suggested, Justice O'Connor had suggested that there would be a 25-year end line to this, and they cut it short, you know, by at least uh, five years. So I look forward to, you know, discussing other items in the uh, presentation. I do want to mention, you know, very specifically that the court does acknowledge universities may consider an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. And that's just a really important point that I wanted to mention. So thank you very much. Uh, it, it is wonderful to be here with, with all of you to talk about this really important issue. And I'm, I'm really honored to be part of such an esteemed uh, group of individuals on this panel. Uh, it's, it's sometimes hard to disagree with, with friends. Uh, but this is one of those instances where uh, I, as a liberal Democrat, am, um, am on the other side uh, of an issue, and, uh, and so I want to explain why I'm on that other side and why I testified in the case and why I think uh, this decision actually in some ways could be a win for uh, working class students of, of all races. So. Um, as, as Kimberly mentioned, I, I did testify in the case. Uh, my testimony was uh, that racial diversity is very important to have on campus. And in fact, uh, the, the UNC lawyer cited my testimony to that effect in the Supreme Court oral argument, said even their expert says racial diversity is really important, and I think it is. Uh, and so I want to focus on new ways to get racial diversity uh, in, in the future given this, this decision. Um, okay, so shortly after the Supreme Court decision came down, the Biden administration had a uh, summit to address this crisis in education. What are we gonna do now for those of us who care about racial diversity continuing to, to be present on campus? And Angel Perez, who's the uh, CEO of the National Association of College Admissions Counseling, uh, said, don't let a, a crisis go to waste. And the Colorado College president, Song Richardson, said, affirmative action made us complacent. 
Now that tool is gone and I'm optimistic that all of us can work together to fix our broken system. So what's the broken system? Uh, well, it, it, is, it is true, as David suggested, there are many things that go into holistic admissions at elite colleges, because uh, that's what we're talking about here is selective colleges where they're, they're deciding who's gonna get in and who, who uh, you know, what sort of preferences are gonna be considered. And uh, William Bowen, who is a, was a strong supporter of race-based affirmative action, did a study a number of years ago of 13 elite colleges and found out when you crunch the numbers, uh, it is true that you know, there are many factors that go into admissions, but some count a whole lot more than others. Uh, and so the biggest preference goes to recruited athletes. So what this 30.2% means is that your chances of admissions are increased by 30.2 percentage points if you are a recruited athlete. So let's say you had a 30% chance of getting in on the merits. Now you have a 60.2%. Just, you just add, add this, uh, these numbers to your, your chances. Being an underrepresented minority was the next most significant uh, consideration. Uh, then legacy preferences, which we've heard a lot about uh, in the news recently. I edited a book called Affirmative Action for the Rich, which argued these legacy preferences are, are extremely difficult to, to defend and, and ought to go. I think especially now that the Supreme Court has ruled uh, that's, uh, that's particularly true. Um, so those are kind of the big three things that count in admissions. And every university will tell you, well, we also consider the socioeconomic obstacles that students have overcome because we think socioeconomic diversity is important. Uh, and it is technically true that they consider first-generation college uh, as, a, as a plus factor, but it's a tiny plus factor compared to the other three big factors that are used in admissions. Uh, and then being in the bottom income uh, quartile, Bowen found actually made no difference. It had no positive effect uh, in admissions. Now this study was done a while ago, so in the Supreme Court litigation, we kind of went through the same exercise. And uh, this is from, from my expert report. It's based on Peter Arsitkiakono's analysis of the Harvard admissions plan. And the logic coefficient is just basically tells you the size of the preference provided. And so the bigger the number, the bigger the preference. And at Harvard, recruited athlete was the, by far the most important factor. Uh, you, you had a big increased chance of admissions. And then like Bowen, they found pretty much the same thing, that uh, African-Americans, legacies, uh, children of faculty got a big preference. Uh, Hispanic students applying early uh, was provided a preference. And then uh, at the very bottom uh, was the consideration of socioeconomic disadvantage and first generation. Uh, UNC, the same sort of numbers apply. Uh, these are the preferences uh, for the out-of-state applicants because that's the much more competitive um, pool uh, at UNC. And so uh, you can see the, the order of preferences there. For in-state, it's similar, except legacy counts a lot less for, for in-state. So the, the pattern holds across that race, legacy, uh, count a lot more than socioeconomic disadvantage. And as a result, we have, uh, in the, have had in the past racial diversity without socioeconomic diversity. Uh, 
And so Harvard uh, has had a majority of students who are students of color, which I think is a beautiful thing. I applaud them for that. Uh, they also, uh, according to a study by Raj Chetty, had 22 times as many rich students as poor students. So they were bringing together fairly well-off students of all races, which is a big step forward from all white, uh, but it's not genuine diversity that they were seeking. And so 71% of the underrepresented minority students, that is black, Hispanic, and Native American students, were from the richest one-fifth of the black, Hispanic, and Native American populations nationally. So the most privileged one, one-fifth. Uh, if black students were as underrepresented at Harvard as uh, first-generation college students had been, uh, then black students would have been at, at a 2% uh, representation rate rather than the 15% that, that Harvard provided. Uh, UNC is, um, and David touched on this, has, a, has an egregious history on race. Uh, and then if you look today on socioeconomic status, uh, they pride themselves as being the people's university. And if they have 15 times as many wealthy as low-income students. Racial diversity without socioeconomic diversity. So it seems to me there are two paths forward now for universities who care about race uh, and are now going to have to care about socioeconomic diversity more, more than they did in the past. Uh, one is to try to recreate the old system. Uh, the economically biased system through the, uh, the use of the personal essay loophole. And as, as David mentioned, uh, the Supreme Court did say that you can consider the individual discussion of race, and they talked about adversity and inspiration. Uh, at the same time, they immediately pulled back, and the majority says, but don't try to just engineer what you had been doing in the past by, through the personal essay loophole. The dissent called the personal essay loophole lipstick on a pig. They used the phrase, don't be fooled by this. You know, if you try to do this, you're just going to end up in court again. Uh, and so what we're left with in terms of that approach, I think, is, is one advocated by Richard Rothstein, uh, a uh, historian of housing segregation. And he advocated that universities should just defy the Supreme Court. Just don't disregard what, they, uh, what the Supreme Court said. Um, uh, which I haven't heard a single university president uh, or administrator take, take him up on it, but that, that, you know, that's an option. The second option, which obviously is the one I favor, is adopting authentic race-neutral strategies, uh, which is legally safer, much safer, than the, the first option, but is also much more expensive, which is precisely why universities haven't done it in the past. You have to provide financial aid. Uh, to students who are economically disadvantaged and universities don't want to take money away from faculty salaries and uh, administrator salaries and other things. They would rather devote the resources uh, to those other things than to, to financial aid. So uh, the, the leading, uh, in my view, the leading race-neutral alternative is to provide an econo uh, economically-based preference uh, to, uh, to students, and I'll go into a little bit of detail on what I mean by that, and provide more financial aid. We can also have better recruitment of students. It's perfectly legal to be targeted with race in recruitment, and it should be, and uh, universities should do a better job of that. There are some that are using percentage plans, like the top 10% plan in Texas. We've just seen Tennessee and South Carolina adopt that type of program. And then others uh, are talking about increasing the number of community college transfers. And so 
Berkeley and UCLA, which have had to deal with a racial preference ban for decades now, uh, they, they admit uh, about a quarter of their class from uh, community college transfers. And because community colleges are much more economically and racially diverse, that provides more diversity at Berkeley and, and UCLA. So, so what happens if you provide a socioeconomic preference? Uh, well, this, is, uh, this was talked about in the oral argument at the Supreme Court. It's Simulation D, which is one of the, uh, one of the simulations that I did in conjunction with Peter Arsene And in this uh, scenario, Harvard would get rid of its unfair preferences for privileged people. So it would get rid of the legacy preferences, get rid of the preferences for uh, faculty children. We actually left uh, athletic preferences in there, so that's something that universities might do that they, we, we, we were not um, suggesting happen. Uh, and provide a socioeconomic preference to those who are economically disadvantaged that would be half the size of the current uh, preference for recruited athletes. And here are the results. You see white percentages go down, partly because of that legacy and getting rid of legacies and, uh, and faculty preferences. Asian American admits go up. Black percent, the black representation went down from 14% to 10%, which I'm gonna talk about in, in a little bit more in a minute. Uh, Hispanic representation actually increased to 19%. Uh, the total underrepresented minority uh, population would, would remain about the same. Uh, in terms of uh, the academic preparedness of the class, Harvard complained, oh, this, is, this will be a terrible thing because we're going to have to admit students who are less qualified. They went from the 99th percentile to the 98th percentile in SATs. And when you consider the fact that, uh, that you, you can see at the bottom there, there's a lot more socioeconomic diversity. So you're admitting a lot of more students who've overcome economic obstacles. The fact that the class as a whole is at the 98th percentile in SAT scores ought to be pretty uh, impressive. It's impressive to me, at least. I don't think it's a, a, a diminution of, of academic quality. Uh, okay, now let me talk for a minute about that drop for black, uh, black representation from 14% to 10%. One of the key things to note that is, is that in the simulation, we did not have access to wealth data. Uh, that is your accumulated assets, not your annual income, but your accumulated assets. And the reason that's important is because, uh, precisely because of the history of, of enslavement and, and uh, segregation and, and redlining, um, there is, uh, okay, I'll, I'll wrap up. Um, I have one minute left, and I've got a bunch of slides, but I'm going um, to, will, I will summarize the last five slides in one sentence, I guess. Um, but this is an important point on, on wealth. Um, so uh, it is, I strongly advocate that universities consider wealth in admissions. Uh, number one, it's the fair thing to do, because if you come from a low wealth family and do pretty well despite that, that's impressive. Secondly, it's going to have a very, very positive uh, disparate impact racially. It's going to uh, benefit black and Hispanic students much more because uh, the income gap you can see in America is, is, you know, it's substantial. The wealth gap is gargantuan. And, uh, and that's because wealth is handed down over generations, so it better captures the, the history of uh, slavery and segregation. So the next question, which I will summarize in 30 seconds, is, you know, are conservatives going to attack race-neutral alternatives? And I know Deborah's going to talk about this anyway, so uh, uh, I'm looking forward to what she has to say. There is a case, uh, as the dean mentioned, the Thomas Jefferson case, and um, I'm, 
I, you know, I, I, that's very troubling to me that they're going after socioeconomic uh, and geographic preferences. Uh, I think there's enough from the Supreme Court justices to suggest that, uh, that that's unlikely to prevail. And so the, the, the dissent said nice things about socioeconomic preferences. Justice Thomas said nice things. Justice Gorsuch said nice things. Justice Kavanaugh said nice things. And Justice Alito didn't say anything, but he did had said nice things uh, in Fisher too. Right, thank, thank you. you. Okay, thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here, to see so many of my students and to be on this panel, and thank you, Kimberly, for organizing it. So I wanna talk about two questions which have already been mentioned, one by David and one by Richard, and I'm just gonna drill down into them a little more. So I think the case tees up two really important questions. Um, the first one I wanna talk about is something I think that David mentioned, so in the opinion, the Chief Justice says the following. By accepting race-based admissions programs um, in which some students may obtain preferences on the basis of race alone, respondents' programs tolerate the very thing that Grutter forswore, stereotyping. The point of respondents' admissions program is that there is an inherent benefit in race qua race, in race for its own sake. And then a little later, the Chief Justice said the following, which David mentioned. At the same time, all the parties agree, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. So the first question that the opinion tees up is what is the difference between an admissions policy that counts race qua race, or race for its own sake, which is prohibited, and one that takes into account how race affected an applicant's life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise, which the chief says is permissible. So a university aiming to comply with the court's decision must avoid the first, but is permitted to do the second. So that combination suggests there's a distinction between the first and the second. What I wanna drill down is on is, what is that distinction? Well, you could say as a matter of impl implementation, it's simple, no check boxes, but you can use an essay. And that's certainly true, um, but the essay is the easy part. When a university looks at the essay, what is it allowed to do exactly? What is it allowed to consider? After all, the Chief Justice also emphasizes that universities may not simply, this is a quote, universities may not simply establish through the application essays or other means the regime that we hold unlawful today. So what exactly does this require an admissions official acting in good faith and aiming to comply with the court's command not to circumvent what are, what are they allowed to do? Well, one thing we know is they can't stereotype. And I'm gonna put that in quotation marks because one question is what exactly is stereotyping? But they can't stereotype. You heard that in the passage that I read to you already that you know that's bad. Um, and actually the word stereotype appears several places in the opinion and always with this negative valence, like stereotyping bad. Um, here's another passage. 
The race-based admissions system that respondents employ also fail to comply with the twin commands of the Equal Protection Clause that race may never be used as a negative and that it may not operate as a stereotype. So whatever we're supposed to be doing, it's not stereotyping. But what is stereotyping exactly in the court's view other than something that's not good? So the Chief Justice offers us this. Harvard, Harvard's admissions processed process, excuse me, rests on the pernicious stereotype that a black student can usually bring something that a white student cannot offer. So what I take from that is that what a stereotype is, in the Chief Justice's view, what is that we're supposed to avoid, is a generalization about people of a particular race. So what's forbidden is people of X race generally have Y experience, which gives them Z trait. Um, and therefore, people of that race get a plus because we want people with Z trait, whatever the trait is. By contrast, what is permitted, um, so the court offers us, if we want to know that's the forbidden, we need to know what's the allowed. The court explains, a benefit to a student who overcame racial discrimination, for example, must be tied to that student's courage and determination. I don't have slides, but that student appears in italics. So what is permitted by contrast is something like an applicant describes her personal experience of race, which displays that she has some trait, Z trait, and the university gives that person a plus. Okay, all of that makes me wonder, so now I'm just trying to extract what it is that the court says is permissible, what is it impermissible, and now I'm gonna raise a few questions about that. So here are some of the things that I wonder about. Imagine that an applicant writes, I'm a black man in America, and that's affected me in all the ways you would expect. That is, the applicant invokes the stereotype, right? We have some views generally about what the experience of race might be, but this person doesn't describe it in detail. Is that on the permissible side? Because the applicant is invoking the stereotype himself, so it's individualized, or is that on the impermissible side because it relies on a stereotype? In other words, how individualized must things be? Stereotypes, remember, are a form of generalization. And sometimes they do capture something that's true, not of every one of the group, but generally, right? They, they, they're generalizations that are sometimes accurate as generalizations. So by rejecting racial generalization, which is what the Chief Justice appears to reject and calling them bad stereotypes, what exactly is the um, court rejecting or mandating? Well, one thing you might say is the court's asking, saying, make sure the generaliz generalization is true about that particular individual, which sounds like reason a reasonable request or a reasonable command, but here are some worries or some concerns you might have about that. Suppose, not unreasonably, that race has a powerful effect on people's life experiences. This way of framing what the court can, uh, what a university can and can't do, says to the university, you can only take account of those uh, effects 
to the extent that the candidate makes that connection in their particular case. Um, the problem with that is it lets us know that it applies to the individual so that they're not an outlier, so you could say that's a good thing. But the problem with that is that the approach, that, the, uh, that this approach will mean that the university will miss the cases, meaning the students or the applicants, where the generalization is true of that individual, but the applicant doesn't discuss it. So we're gonna miss that, so there's a trade-off there. Also, and I think of this as a perverse consequence, it's likely to invite students who their experience of race has affected them to discuss that. It's, it's saying, you gotta discuss this on your essay for us to take that generalization into account. And if part of the impetus for the court's opinion is to say that we shouldn't pay so much attention to race, we don't wanna make race so salient, the perverse effect might be to make everyone emphasize this racial dimension of their experience even more because that's the only way we can use that generalization is, in the, is when they've tied it to their individual experience. Okay, that's the first question about what does that mean, that distinction. The second question I want to discuss is the one that Richard teed up, and that is, can universities use facially neutral means to achieve diversity? And by facially neutral, especially for those of you who haven't yet had con law, I mean methods that don't have an explicit uh, reliance on race, so like taking, uh, giving a plus factor from students from disadvantaged schools or who are, um, um, who are poor first generation college students or in the top 10% of their high school graduating class. You might think that the answer to that is an obvious yes, of course they can do that. After all, in prior affirmative action cases, when the court was assessing whether the, use, the explicit use of race was narrowly tailored, um, as strict scrutiny requires them to do, they asked, were there race-neutral alternatives they could have used? Um, it'd be sort of weird if they were asking whether there were race-neutral alternatives they could have used to assess whether it, the use of race passed strict scrutiny if the use of those race-neutral alternatives wasn't permissible. So that would suggest that they can. In addition, as David mentioned, um, the, the opinion in SFFA doesn't explicitly overrule Grutter, which suggests that diversity uh, is still a compelling governmental interest, which would seem to suggest that you could use race-neutral means to achieve it. So why think universities would not be able to do it? All of that seems to suggest that they might be able to. Well, I'm gonna invite you to think about a hypothetical here. Imagine a university, a bad university that says we're gonna give a minus to people of a particular race, you know, we're a minority race, we're gonna give them a minus. And they get sued for race discrimination and the court says you can't do that, that's race discrimination. And then they say, okay, we're gonna um, have a preference for people from, or a demerit, a minus for people from particular zip codes because zip code correlates with, with race. Um, and they managed to achieve much of what they had achieved before of excluding people from particular races by using zip code. And you might say, well, they can't do that. That's clearly impermissible. Um, and that's likely the result that, would, uh, that a court would reach. But why? 
can't they do that? The standard doctrinal answer is because you adopted it with the intention of excluding the zip code policy with the intention of excluding people of a particular race. But if that's what made the zip code policy the equivalent of an exclusion on the basis of race, why isn't a policy to include people of a particular race if you adopt a um, class rank or a community college uh, plus factor, if you do that in order to increase racial diversity, why isn't that just doing the same thing? If the intention is what transforms it into a race-based policy, those two suggest they should be treated the same. Um, so now we have a problem that those facially neutral policies seem to be under current doctrine, or one reading of current doctrine, um, impermissible. Now, I think there are arguments to, that can be made for why they're clearly permissible. One minute. Oh, uh, everything that the court said in the prior affirmative action cases suggests they're permissible. There's a bunch of stuff to suggest they're impermissible. The logic of focusing on what the intent is. So where does that leave us? Uh, I think that SFFA gives us some tea leaves to read. Richard put some slides up. I actually think Kavanaugh says the strong, in the strongest way that he thinks those race-neutral means are permissible, but I would say we're reading tea leaves here. I think this issue will come up, it already has come up in the K-12 education context, and I guess we'll talk about that in the Q&A, so I won't say anything about the Thomas Jefferson High School case, which clearly raises that issue. Let me just end by saying, I do think the deliberate use of facially neutral means to achieve diversity is and should be permissible, but I think reaching that result will require the court to uh, make changes in the current doctrine. That is, it's not so easy to explain why they're permissible within the confines of the current doctrine. And at least as a con law person, it'll be interesting to see if they get there, how they get there, and what the ramifications for that, for a con law doctrine are. And I'm happy to chat about it in future. So I am going to talk about the Thomas Jefferson case today, but before I do that, I kind of want to roadmap a little bit of what I want to talk about today with you all. Um, and that's specifically to ground these, this case into the reality and what its motivations is and what is coming next and what the motivations for what's coming next. To be clear, there was a goal behind this case. The architect behind this case is Ed Bloom. He's been, has a history uh, of doing away with uh, things that increase racial equality in our country. He was behind the Shelby County case, which did away with the Voting Rights Act uh, preclearance process. Um, he's behind Fisher One and Fisher Two. Uh, and in those cases, Justices Thomas and Alito uh, basically brought in the Asian American model minority myth into play, which really just is an age-old trope of divide and conquer. And uh, that resulted in Ed Bloom saying, well, gosh darn it, I need some Asian plaintiffs, quote, unquote. And there you have it. There comes his motivation for bringing in uh, the claim against Asian Americans in Harvard. 
Um, and so now we're coming to this case, and as uh, in the opinion, one of the reasons that uh, race conscious uh, admissions policies were further curtailed is because Justice Roberts thought that it was almost impossible to really measure the narrow tailoring of these policies um, and whether it could be feasible to achieve their goals and whether that was measurable. And one of the explanations that his opinion gave was that, look, Universities don't really collect data. They don't collect disaggregated data. That the racial classifications are too broad. Asian Americans could include East Asians, South Asians, Southeast Asians. Um, for example, uh, Northern African or Middle Eastern people are completely not included in some of these categorizations. Are they considered Caucasian? Um, you know, what does it mean to be Hispanic and whether you are Latino? I mean, we know the Census Bureau uh, has some issues with that. So, you know, so he, he goes into this long issue. And instead of saying, however, that, oh, no, we should collect this disaggregated data so we can accurately measure whether we're narrowly tailoring this, it's like, but it doesn't really matter in a footnote. So don't, don't do it anyways, because what's the point, you know? Um, and to be clear, though, if we want to support Asian Americans, disaggregated data is essential because we are not a monolith. And we know that, for example, Southeast Asian students are underrepresented and that they are direct beneficiaries of race-conscious admissions. And coming back to what the goals and motivations are, if you want to advance the rights of all Asian Americans, then you should not exclude them when you file a complaint against Yale for discrimination. And that is exactly what SSFA did. Southeast Asians, they don't count. They're not Asian. That's different. No, no. Um, so uh, that's, again, grounding this in the motivation. Um, but it is very clear that Asian Americans are beneficiaries of affirmative actions, as are we all, because diversity helps us all in a learning uh, environment. It is not just for the, the beneficiaries of these programs. Um, and it's also important to realize that Asian Americans overwhelmingly support affirmative action. Um, you know, during a voter surveys, more than 70 or close to 70 percent supported affirmative actions and uh, this was also reflected in a Gallup poll. But we are where we are and uh, you know it is interesting to talk about what's next and race neutral um, is what's next and what's going to happen on the ground and what is the reality and the motivation again. Um, we talked, David talked about zero-sum. Uh, education is not zero-sum. Um, public education certainly is not zero-sum. But this phrase was used by Pacific Legal Foundation in the TJ case during the Fourth Circuit argument, and it was repeated in Justice Thomas's, I'm sorry, Justice Roberts' opinion. Um, and the Thomas Jefferson case is not about affirmative action. Uh, it was about race-neutral or facially neutral policies and changes. We're talking about how this would work in practice. And this case was happening simultaneously, concurrently with these cases in anticipation that 
once race-conscious admissions policies in higher ed were curtailed, how do we then do the next issue to further restrict access to educational opportunities? And this is where race-neutral attacks are coming in. Um, and so what is the TJ case and what happened in that case? I would say that the Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology is an elite public magnet school uh, in Fairfax County. There is, um, in that case, there used to be about four feeder middle schools that were in the wealthiest part of Fairfax County. Uh, and the school board went to talk, uh, looked at the Fairfax County and the makeup of who was getting admitted into TJ, and it was very imbalanced. There were four feeder schools. The rest of the county was lagging behind, and it didn't include, there was a severe underrepresentation of black and brown students, but also underserved Asian American students. And again, we talk about that data disaggregation. So there is an awareness of race and the need for multiracial diversity, socioeconomic diversity for the less wealthy part of the uh, county. And so what did the school board do? They enacted these facially neutral policies. Uh, they eliminated an admissions test because let's face it, test prep is gaming it. It's available for people who have wealth to do it. They eliminated the $100 application fee and they expanded the size of the class. They increased the requirements for who would be considered a, or made the requirements more stringent uh, for who would be qualified students, which meant that they had to have a higher GPA. Uh, they had to complete higher level classes, including algebra, honor science, and an honor social studies or English classes. This applied to everybody equally. And the top 1.5% of those qualified students with the higher courseworks uh, would get, would be qualified to be admitted into TJ. But that didn't fill the whole class size. And so what happens then is the rest of the qualified pool would be selected through an admissions process whereby the applicant's race was erased. And so not only was it race neutral, it was colorblind, right? But despite all of this, um, some Asian parents by these repeat players like SSFA and PLF brought a suit that because the school board was aware of a lack of diversity, um, that meant that these race neutral policies were racial proxies. Um, and they won during what was summary judgment, so pro, uh, at the trial court level because uh, they did some really bad math for considering this is TJ, right? Uh, it's a little ironic. Uh, but anyway, so the bad math was this. They said before these policies, we had X number of Asian students, and after these policies, the total number of Asian students fell. Now, why is this bad math? because that's, if we do that before and after comparison, what does that mean? So let's change the hypothetical in one key way. Instead of an overrepresentation of Asian students, we had an overrepresentation of white students, and we had an underrepresentation of Asian students. School board is aware of this. They enact the same race-neutral policies, and the Asian-American student representation goes up, the white student population goes down, well, that's not race neutral anymore either, is it? Because now this discriminates against Asian, uh, white students, right? So what this before and after analysis does is it 
maintains the status quo. It creates a baseline. And if that's going to be the only way that, like, if you have to maintain the baseline, then we can't ever have change. We can't ever be aware of the fact that there are uh, disparities in the access, right? That can't be correct. So what is the correct metric, right? Does it mean that Asian Americans couldn't access these education levels after the fact? Did their share of the applicant pool of qualified students uh, go down? No, they were still overwhelmingly overrepresented. And one of, oh, I forgot to mention one thing. In terms of other considerations for admissions, uh, after the top 1.5%, you could consider things like socioeconomics, whether you were eligible for reduced or free school lunches, whether you had uh, LE, uh, whether you were limited English proficient, in which case Asian Americans are overwhelmingly represented, um, or if you had some sort of disability. The beneficiaries of these considerations were also <laughs> overwhelmingly Asian Americans. Yet that was problematic. Um, and so what happened? Uh, as I mentioned, let's go back to the CivPro. They, uh, the plaintiffs uh, won at the trial court level. The school board appealed to the Fourth Circuit, and the Fourth Circuit issued a stay of the trial court's ruling that they needed to go back to this test-heavy, uh, uh, you know, uh, socioeconomically disfavored process that was there before. Um, and so they uh, stayed that ruling from the trial court and PLF appealed uh, to the Supreme Court to say, no, no, while this appeal is going on, lift the stay, go back to that old system. And luckily the Supreme Court did not do that. Uh, they did not lift the stay. However, three justices that Rich mentioned said, no, 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 we should lift the stay. Who were those justices, by the way? Thomas Alito and Gorsuch, they wrote separately that they would have lifted the stay. So what, what do we know uh, now and where we're leaving is that the Fourth Circuit ruled in uh, favor of the school board. PLF has filed for a cert petition. That cert petition is pending. Uh, it has not been fully briefed. And we know that there are three justices who agreed with them already. Right? In order to lift the say, that meant that they thought that the trial court had correctly decided this. They need one more vote to take this case, and that will decide the future of what these facially race-neutral policies are. And as Abby mentioned, can these policies be implemented if you remain like an ostrich and are completely unaware of the diversity that exists or doesn't exist in your institution. It doesn't just, it's not limited to race, but it should include race if you believe in diversity as a compelling interest. And as David said, nobody said that that wasn't important. So if you are aware of the racial diversity in your institution, does that automatically negate you from implementing so-called race-neutral measures? And according to the Pacific Legal Foundation, the answer is yes. According to SSFA, the answer is yes, and that's why I come back to why are there, what is the underlying motive here, and I think we can't divorce that from uh, these cases and look at them, you know, in, in a hypothetical situation. So thank you. So this is a contested area. There are lots of, there's lots of uh, research on the issue of how effective were these race-neutral alternatives in achieving racial diversity in the states where affirmative action was banned. Uh, the, in the oral arguments, the uh, Solicitor General 
representing the Biden administration said that it was mixed, that there are some states where race-neutral alternatives had been effective, and she, uh, she said at that point, you know, we need to study them and find out what they're doing right, and there are others that have been less effective. Uh, I think, uh, I mean, I have my own view, and I'm, I'm sure others on the panel will have different views on, on how effective some of the states were, but I just want to underline one point, which is that if you were uh, an elite university like UC Berkeley that was trying to use race-neutral alternatives to achieve racial diversity, you had a big disadvantage because all your competitors, or virtually all your competitors, could still use race in admissions. That will change under the uh, Supreme Court ruling. Now, everyone will be on a, a, a level playing field. But to make this concrete, if, a, if there were a highly talented uh, black or Hispanic student who was admitted to Berkeley uh, without any consideration of, of race, uh, they probably also got into an even more selective college uh, like Stanford which could consider the use of race. And so they went to Stanford. And so to the extent that some of the evidence was discouraging at a place like Berkeley, we have to remember that's not, that's, that's a test case for what was true in the past, but we'll be in a different uh, situation in the future where everyone uh, is on a level playing field in competing for talented black and Hispanic students. Yeah, so a few reactions to that. One is, it's not an either or, right? You know, we always talk about, oh, well, you should put more weight towards socioeconomic status and less to race or less to this factor and more to this factor. And, you know, the beauty of higher education when you have diversity, it's across so many different backgrounds, right? You have students learning together and growing together and learning from one another. Even if they disagree, they just learn about different perspectives, right? So how do you best capture that? You don't just, well, let's do a race-neutral plan and see how many brown and black and Native American students we can sweep up, you know, with that. You know, you have to, it has to be a comprehensive approach, you know, with recruitment, with uh, financial aid, with, um, you know, the admissions programs itself, you know, and what criteria they're going to, uh, you know, consider as part of their admissions policy. Because the fact is, is that all of the universities across the country, all of the top universities in states that have stopped affirmative action have all plummeted, not just gone down by a little. I'm talking about in the first five years after that. And how and why? It's because testimony from our students said, you know what, if UNC no longer considers race as an admissions factor, that tells me I don't belong there. And this is a university, again, with a reputation like it has, you know, again, founded for the children of enslaved people, and still struggles. I mean, it has what our, uh, one of our clients called you know, racist graffiti across the, the campus. And we're like, what do you mean? And she's like, 
these buildings that are named after white supremacists, these Confederate soldiers, you know, how does that make me feel like I'm wanted here at this university? And so I think it has to be a comprehensive approach, but it's also incumbent on these universities to break down their existing systemic barriers. So like, how much weight are they putting to SAT scores? Because how many of you were able to buy up your test scores? And I'm gonna say, I'm gonna phrase it that way. How many of you were able to buy up your test scores through tutoring programs or taking classes? I mean, I remember like hearing about, what, from a friend of mine who went to Bartlesville, Oklahoma of all places, but you know, he actually had a class for a semester long where they just tested and tested and tested and learned how to test. You know, how many of you took classes to buy up your LSAT scores? And what does that say? And so, you know, our, our educational system, the public educational system is so wrought with inequality and how and why, it's just arbitrary, right? It's not like people don't set that in motion through themselves, you know, through their own policies, you know, that they adopt. And that's how and why I think you know, they need to look at breaking down systemic barriers, putting less weight to standardized testing, uh, tearing down you know, legacy admissions uh, programs, getting rid of arbitrary course degree requirements. So some department uh, degree programs require you to take an AP uh, calculus course. Even though AP calculus, you would never use that knowledge in the degree program, but they still have it there. And how and why? You know, because that's just the way they've done it. Or because, well, many other uh, reasons perhaps. Uh, but it, it just has to be a real comprehensive approach to ensure we don't lose ground. And we're trying to get the word out, you know, about that um, as well. One of the things that came up, so I was able to attend the White House Summit about the cases um, that they held to discuss sort of what does this mean for higher education, and one of the things that came out of the summit was to think about not just rethinking admissions and sort of always doing what's been done, right? So significant legacy preferences, um, you know, rethinking how we partner with, for example, K-12 institutions. and so. In bringing up the Thomas Jefferson case, I'm interested in what you all think the implications are for K-12. So certainly when the litigation was being brought forward, the, the mantra was, you know, we have to make sure there's a level playing field. But we know from K-12 education that we do not have a level playing field in this country, that we do not have equal opportunity in our schools. And so I'm interested in your thoughts about how should we think about the entire like K-16 system? So not just what will this mean for higher ed, but all of the higher ed students are coming from K-12. And so in, in some of the states where they have banned affirmative action, some of those universities actually are partnering with school districts and others to do things like teacher programs, to do pipeline programs. And so I'm interested in thoughts, your reflections on how this SFAA's decision might impact K-12 education as well. And Debbie, you didn't get to talk about the TJ case. I, didn't, I was trying to open up the oh. K-12 edge. Okay, well, I'm yeah. happy to talk about the TJ case, but the question you're asking is a little, I'm, I, you know, I would love to know what's gonna happen to K-12 education in terms of whether it's going to, whether does the decision is gonna spur politicians to invest more in K-12 education. I'd love to see that, but um, that's outside of my area of expertise. I think the TJ case, and uh, 
is a harbinger for the question about how we think about race-neutral policies that are aimed at increasing diversity, not just in the education context, but beyond. You know, there are many policies that we adopt. We adopt some, I don't know, a universal pre-K because we think it's going to reduce racial disparities in education. Um, that also is a race-neutral policy that's adopted in part because of the impact it will have. So I think that the issue is really big. It's not just, and that example is limited to education. Healthcare, there's a lot of policies we might adopt in the healthcare space that are adopted, could be adopted at least in part because we think they're gonna reduce racial disparities in health outcomes or something like that. So the issue is really big, much, much bigger than, if you think about the world of elite higher education, that's, that's a narrow world compared to what the question about race neutral policies um, Im implies. So I think it's a really, really important issue. I wanna say one thing in reaction to something that Niyati said. You said aware. I think aware, if you're aware of the racial consequences, I'm not sure aware is the right word. For those of you who've taken con law already, you know you know if, if a policy has a disparate racial impact, what matters is whether you adopted, whether the governmental actor adopted it because of and not merely in spite of, that's the test now, it's racial impact. So it's about intention, not just awareness. But I think it's, so if you're just aware of the racial impact, I don't think that that is actually a problem. But if you adopt a racially neutral policy because with the intention motivated by the, the racial dimensions of the impact, those are the, things that would be problematic. And what I want to ask you is, whatever you think of those race-neutral policies, Richard said, and he has a long record of, of being in favor of like socioeconomic status, like adopting those policies for reasons that don't have to do with their racial impact, but because he wants us to care more about the socioeconomic uh, and class effects. Somebody else, I'll put a, not put a name to this position, might adopt those policies because they reduce racial disparities. I find it weird that the constitutionality, that it would be constitutional for Richard to do it, but not for someone else. That seems bizarre to me. That is, because he cares about something else, because he cares about socioeconomic diversity, he can ad adopt these race-neutral policies, but someone who cares about reducing racial disparities can't. That's what would follow from the idea that it matters if you adopted it because of the, not merely in spite of, the racial effects. Richard would pass that test, somebody else wouldn't. So, I think that's the aspect of our doctrine that we need to interrogate. Is the intention of the governmental actor really what's relevant in deciding whether you think these facially neutral policies should or should not be constitutional? So that, I think, is where we're going to see some, at least, inquiry, I hope. Yeah, so I want to just add two things to that. I, I was very... Um, liberal with my phrasing uh, in the interest of time here, but I, you are exactly right. Is it, was it, you know, uh, it, because of, rather than in spite of the impact and disparate impact, again, was my analogy to the bad math uh, here, because disparate math, uh, impact is not that simple. 
And the test for intent isn't simple, especially today, as we know. It's uh, much more, you have to look at a whole bunch of different factors to suss out intent because you don't have uh, you know, that smoking gun where somebody is saying that I want to hurt Asian Americans or I want to restrict access to black and brown students. You don't have those very rarely. I mean, if you had that, then it doesn't matter what the impact is. That's still intentional discrimination, right? If you said that I want to harm black people through these policies, even if you had no impact, that's still intentional discrimination. Right, but we don't have that, and so there is a test about, uh, developed for that. So, uh, and and I want to talk about TJ again, what is and use it as an example to go back to Kim's question here about you know what is it, what are our pipelines going to look like? And we talked about these, um, you know, policies that the school board adopted for uh, admissions to TJ that are facially neutral, uh, and higher coursework was one of them. Well, it turns out that some of those higher level math and science courses are not available at all the middle schools in Fairfax County, right? So what then? What about that additional barrier that those students have? The school board said, oh, no, no, if your middle school doesn't have it, that's okay, we'll figure out a way to get you the access to those courses. But that still means more resources from that student, from that family. Um, and that is going to impact the pipeline of who has access to educational opportunities. And I don't want to couch this in terms of elite institutions because it is restricting access at so many levels from bottom up. Uh, and so that these coursework requirements um, to access additional opportunities is something that needs to be addressed. And it gets more amplified the higher up we go. Uh, and you know, what courses, what AP classes, what counselors uh, schools have, what other resources they have to play sports. We've all seen the Varsity Blues scandal. I won't even go into that. Um, you know, all of these things are at play. Uh, and that's just in the public education system in the K through 12. What about the standards that uh, apply to private institutions? Uh, do they have any? Right? Like when you say I want calculus, does a private institution actually meet that level of what calculus looks like or calc BCE looks like? They don't have to. They just claim that they're doing that above and beyond. And sometimes, based on their reputation, they're given the benefit of the doubt. So again, where are the inequities in that? Um, and how does that play in? And as we talk about school choice more, how is that going to get exacerbated going forward? I think I want to just comment briefly on the awareness uh, issue. So, yeah, it's true. When you have to prove intentional discrimination through Arlington Heights, and I've done it in cases uh, before, the bar is extremely high, especially if you're in the Fifth and Eleventh Circuit uh, courts of law. It's maybe even higher. Um, but the fact is, is they want to blur the line, right? It's, their whole strategy, even when you look at just Chief Justice Roberts' opinion on, you know, like, you can use race, but you can't use it this way, but you can use it this way, maybe, but just don't, you know, like, you can be aware of it, but just don't consider it, right? And this blur the line strategy, you know, is now, okay, well, yeah, the doctrine says intentional discrimination. This is what you have to do. You have to act because of this, right? But what they're suggesting in this case 
in, in the coalition for TJ, and there's one out of Boston, there's another one from Maryland, there's another one from New York, and they're somewhat interrelated in Philadelphia where they're challenging race-neutral programs, right? So all the time during the SFFA cases, they were like, you should be using uh, race-neutral programs. You should be using race-neutral programs, right? Meanwhile, they had these K-12 cases. And then like on CNN with Abby Phillips, I was on, and they had the SFFA board member there. And she said, well, you know, what about socioeconomics? status. I mean, can you consider, you know, socioeconomic status? And he was like, no, it's got to be about merit. Merit is test scores and grades. That's all that it has. That's all schools should be considering. And that's the kind of mindset because it is, again, not just about tearing down affirmative action, but it's about tearing down racial equality in America. This is part of the anti-civil uh, rights agenda, you know, from SFFA and others, you know, supporters. Uh, and so they want to take this where if you are aware, you hold a meeting and you say, look, you know, some of our community are not accessing healthcare or not accessing housing and stuff. And then all of a sudden you act to address that inequity. They see everything as a zero sum game and you can't win. So they wanna blur that line between awareness and acting on, you know, an intent. So I just wanted to add that. Apologies. Kimberly, so Kimberly sure can I add in one get, quick thing? I, I want to make sure we get to some oh, okay. student questions. Yeah. Any questions from those students or others in the audience? I have a question. Um, this is really targeted like, how um, this I'll, I'll jump in on that one. I, uh, some institutions will need public support. Uh, the, the public opinion data on this suggests that most Americans don't like the consideration of race in deciding who gets in, but most Americans do support affirmative action broadly because they want more diversity. And so in the states where race-based affirmative action was banned, there was public support for greater financial aid at places like, in, in conservative states like Texas and, and Florida, they created new scholarships uh, that could be used. Now those are for public institutions, but I think there, there ought to be uh, you know, a, a groundswell of support for financial aid for institutions to avoid the resegregation of, of higher education. Uh, and, and this is, is the moment uh, when there will be uh, the opportunity to get that support. So in the spring, there will be, uh, you know, the universities will report their numbers on race. And, and I agree with David that in the short term, there will be a drop in uh, black and Hispanic percentages. I think in the long term, that, that won't be the case, that there'll be 
They'll be able to put in new programs. But in the short term, there will be a wake-up call, and people will talk about the, the disastrous effects of doing nothing. And that's the moment uh, to, to try to, to capitalize. And I talked to some admissions officers at small selective uh, institutions that said that the crisis uh, will be a boon for fundraising because people of goodwill are gonna recognize that having a, an institution with tiny percentages of, of black and Hispanic students uh, is unacceptable. And, uh, and so there will be new opportunities. On the legacy thing, I've, I'll push back a little bit because there's, there's research to suggest that uh, the existence of a legacy preference actually doesn't increase donations overall for the institutions. Uh, there, there was one study that I was a part of that looked at 75 institutions that had legacy preferences, 25 that didn't, in the top 100 uh, at US News and World Report. And the existence of a legacy preferences didn't increase donations. And people say, well, how can that possibly be true? Uh, and the, there's another other research that says, yes, donations do increase when children are in uh, sophomores and juniors in high school and their parents give more. But then when the kids are rejected, the, you know, the giving falls off a cliff because the parents are so angry. They said, I got into this institution. Uh, my kid is probably more qualified and they can't even get in with a legacy preference. And all those things are true, uh, but it doesn't acknowledge that the system's gotten so much more competitive. So I think there, there, there are other ways uh, that don't involve shaking down alumni to, to raise money to make, make the necessary changes. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think Financial aid um, is important, and I agree with that. But I again come back to: Is that enough? Will it, it fill the gap? Uh, and I come back to this issue of like, you know, how do you get that financial aid? Who is made aware of it? What are the processes that are involved in obtaining it? And who gets left out through those processes? And if that didn't matter then some of these basic base-neutral challenges, like the one in uh, Montgomery County, Ma Maryland, magnet school programs, uh, it was for middle schools. And one of the changes that they made that is being challenged is that instead of creating an opt-in application system to this program, if you are qualified, you're universally considered, right? So they reduce the barriers to entry, and that is problematic. And again, why are these barriers uh, important is because it exacerbates the disparities that exist. Um, and so while financial aid is important, that's why socioeconomics can't fill the gap because some of the things that help students for who are less affluent, um, they need to be able to overcome barriers with, from somebody else. They can't do it themselves because there are already too many barriers in place for them. And I think that's important to consider. Not to say that financial aid and increasing access to financial aid isn't important. It absolutely is. And it will help bridge the gap. But it's not going to bridge the gap fully. Other questions? Yeah? yeah uh, so this is going to be the last question.
it's it's another consideration, right? In, in both both that Harvard has you know over a hundred factors that they consider. The one that's no longer allowed to be considered is race, ruralness. Uh, in at least I don't recall whether or not at Harvard. I don't know if Rick or Neity recall or anyone else, but um, it was considered at UNC also and. It, it's certainly, you know, legitimate to consider it, right? You know, because they have access, you know, to different resources and everything. But it also, you know, is that something that's more popular in a state like North Carolina that wants to push rule because the population of their rural communities is a lot wider, so they're more comfortable with supporting those policies as opposed to more aggressive policies that might reach other students that are that are different. But it's again, it's another criteria that can and should be you know, considered in the whole application. I was just gonna say one thing that kind of bridges those two questions. Um, I think you can, but the, the limitations about the effectiveness of some of these policies are in part financial unless the costs of higher education go down. I mean, we can't forget how few percentage-wise schools are need-blind to begin with. And if you're not need blind, that means there's a plus factor for being a full pay student. Actually, affirmative action explicitly for the wealthy. That is, they count it as a plus that you're a full pay. And actually, some pretty elite schools are have that. Um, so if you look at the list of need blind schools, it's actually fairly limited. So we're really talking about a major transformation to uh, make it the case that students from lower socioeconomic uh, backgrounds can access higher education other than the most elite schools. And I don't think we should forget that. Yes, and I'll actually just wrap up with um, one point, which is that the educational disadvantage that you're talking about, not having access to those types of AP classes, this is actually the exact type of educational disadvantage that um, in a piece I wrote in the Harvard Law Review, I talk about that universities should consider. In other words, how have you done with what you were provided, and then are you experiencing educational disadvantage so you couldn't get all those extra points for AP? And so I do think as, and that was definitely the sense I got in the room at the White House Summit, is that universities are just very much rethinking their admissions policies. I think this kind of educational disadvantage is definitely one that I hope that they will give greater consideration to. It was already an inequity in the system, and it's one that as we re-examine higher education admissions, they could consider giving additional weight to. So it's certainly a possibility for the future. But with that, we are definitely out of time, so I just want to thank our panelists for coming. Thank you.